Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast. This free podcast is made possible through gifts by people like you. Please consider making a donation through the donate button on the website to help us offer unique audio, video, and text-based teachings on the internet and to grow this community library. Michael's teaching bridges the gap between inner healing and social change by synthesizing traditional spiritual teachings with the insights of the West. To learn about Michael's international retreats and workshops, please visit michaelstoneteaching.com. Thank you for your support. So if we can divide our year into semesters, um, uh, we're going to start off the semester for the next four weeks uh, studying Carl Jung. And the way it's going to begin is for this week, we're just going to sort of enter the essay that I've handed out, and I'll, I'll copy more for next week. And then next week... I'm going to talk a little bit more about his biography. I'm going to focus a lot on uh, his mom. And then for the last two weeks, we're going to tie together what we cover in the first two weeks with what we're doing in our meditation practice. And uh, the plan for, for study for the next while is after that, we're going to do some teachings from the Pali Canon. Then I want to do an essay by Donald Winnicott on playing. And um, on the New Year's retreat, we're going to do Fukaza Zengi, which is a great text by Dogen. So, uh, good luck. <laughs> I don't know if I do this just to make it hard for myself. Or <laughs> so, um, yeah. oh, can you hear me at the back? Yes? Okay. Not really? If you really can't hear you, me, you might have to move up. I'll do my best. Um, in 1909, uh, Carl Jung and Sigmund Freud, who had been working together for just a few years, were both invited to lecture at Clark University in Worcester, Massachusetts. Uh, Freud was traveling from Vienna and Jung was traveling from Zurich. Uh, They met up in England, and then they traveled by boat. And their trip, the first time either of them had been to the United States, uh, took seven weeks. And starting on the boat, they developed this practice of waking up in the morning, uh, putting on their tweed, smoking. Can you see them in the gray Atlantic? Maybe a few birds, nothing around. Uh, having breakfast, and then working almost the whole day on their dreams. So I don't know if you've ever been out on the ocean or on an island or maybe just deep in the natural world somewhere, away from your surroundings, especially if you grew up in a city like Zurich or um, Vienna, uh, you tend to really dream deeply. We all know on you know camping trips or... you know. Um, time out of the city, uh, we tend to have really, really vivid dreams when we're, when we're not moored to the usual habits. So they developed this practice of sharing their dreams, and they started to uh, uh, cultivate this method that they had already begun, which they each had different names for, but nowadays is called free association. So uh, uh, you remember as best you can a dream, And staying in the feeling of the dream, you associate, you allow your mind to just uh, um, capture different fragments of imagination that are related specifically to images in the dream. And what both Freud and Jung were really interested in is how with certain dreams, which come from a part of the mind that we can't control, When certain images show up, sometimes it's hard to associate to them because maybe there's some kind of block or you don't want to speak about a certain subject, and this is what they were really interested in. So this is what they were doing with each other. Um, 
which is a kind of uh, mutual meditation practice. Um, in the seven weeks, there were two dreams that showed up that were uh, fundamental to what would happen in their relationship and actually in their careers. The first one was a dream that Freud had. And when Jung started pushing him to uh, associate to the dream, Freud looked at him uh, suspiciously and stopped himself and said, I cannot uh, associate to these dreams. I can't risk my authority. Um, This stunned Jung, this sentence. I cannot risk my authority. And Jung lost it. And in his autobiography, Jung wrote, that sentence burned itself into my memory. And in it, the end of our relationship was already foreshadowed. Freud was placing personal authority above the truth. And then, of course, a night later, Jung has a huge dream. And he dreamt that he was on the top floor of an old house. It was well furnished. There were fine paintings on the walls. And he marveled that this should be his house. And he thought to himself, he says, not bad. (laughs) But then it occurred to him that he had no idea what the lower floor was like. So he went downstairs to see. And there on the lower floor, everything was the same but older. The furnishings were medieval, and everything was much darker. And then he thought to himself, I have to explore even deeper. So he went down to another floor, and he looked closely at the floor, and the floor was made out of thick stone slabs. And in one of the slabs, he discovered a ring. So he got down, and he pulled the ring, and the ring lifted the whole stone slab. And then he saw some narrow stone steps leading down into the depths, and it was pitch black. He went down... And he entered a low cave that was cut out of the rock, and there were bones and pottery scattered all over in dust. The remains, he thought, he describes, of a primitive culture. And he found there two human skulls, very old and pretty much disintegrated. And then he woke up, startled, seeing these skulls, these really old disintegrating stuff. So he brought this up the next morning with Freud. And all Freud was interested in was the identity of the skulls. He wanted Jung to uh, uh, get a sense of whose skulls these were, these two skulls. And he suggested to Jung that it was evident that Jung must harbor a death wish towards these skulls. And Jung felt that this was totally besides the point, that Freud was superimposing on Jung's dream his theory that these two skulls had something to do with a death wish. Because if if you studied any of Freud, this was like his real early theory was um, the death instinct. Uh, To Jung, the house was an image of the psyche, that the top part was this place that he knew, It was his everyday world. In fact, it was not just his everyday world, but it was his everyday world kind of with a little craving. Right? It's like, oh, there's this beautiful house. You know, I want this. Uh, But then he started going deeper, and his sense was he was going deeper in the psyche. It was getting older. It was becoming more unknown. It was becoming more irrational. And also it was becoming... uh, uh, kind of more outside of time. Um, To him, the skulls had nothing to do with a death wish. He thought that the skulls belonged to ancestors, human ancestors. But he had no association other than that, just that these skulls were ancestral. And when he finally summoned up the courage to announce his hypothesis to Freud... He called the depth of this house 
the collective unconscious. This is his first time he started thinking about this. That maybe when you go deeper and deeper in the mind, the mind doesn't actually narrow down into your historical psyche, but rather the mind kind of opens up. And it opens up into a, a level of the psyche that's shared. And it's not just shared horizontally, like it's not just that we all share this aspect of the mind, but also it's shared vertically and temporally. So it's spatial and also it's temporal. Um, he thought that this part of the mind was uh, innate to all humans and had characteristics that were typical amongst every human in every culture at any time. Uh, he didn't think that they were exclusively uh, psychic or exclusively biological or genetic. He didn't know. And actually, he never really tried to figure that out. He was just interested in the fact that there was this level of the psyche that we all share. Um, but Jung never disagreed with Freud's view that personal experience is significant for our development or that our personal history doesn't, uh, in a really big way, shape our, our lives. That our relationships with our family, our relationships with our environment, how we learn about our gender or the way we move our bodies is, of course, uh, partly nature but is really uh, uh, developed in the formative years. You never disagreed with that. But he thought there was something much, much deeper going on. And to just say that there were these personal childhood drives that wanted expression, Jung just couldn't accept that. And what's interesting to me about this is it came through his subjective study of his dreams. Jung writes... Our psyches are not simply a product of experience any more than our bodies are merely the product of what we eat. So, um, Jung starts uh, thinking through this in a deeper way, and then he starts to realize that the main paradigm in psychology at the time, which back then was called cupboard love, was this idea that your parents uh, um, uh, offer themselves and uh, in good ways and in negative ways, in available ways and unavailable ways. And uh, through your relationship with them, this actually creates who you are. And I think a lot of us still believe this. Yeah? But Jung thought that there was actually something much deeper happening, which is that when a mother or when a parent and a child come together, they actually initiate in each other or they constellate in each other these deeper levels of the psyche. So on the one hand, you're having a relationship with this person you think is your mother, but that relationship is constellating in them some more basic feeling of mother that has nothing to do with their life. It's like the mythological mother. Mm -hmm. And is deeper than the culture. It's, it's something that you almost want to call genetic, but he's not doing that. He's just looking at the psychic level of it. And, and, and likewise with the child, that there's some archetypal way of development that a child goes through. And Jung started realizing that maybe looking at the teachings of Darwin or the teachings that were around at that time wouldn't explain those levels of the psyche. And so what he started to do was he started to read mythology. Because he thought that in mythology, you could see patterns in the culture of how people develop over time. And these patterns, whether it's mythology from religion or cultural mythology or the arts, they, they spoke more to Jung about that level uh, of dreams. And I actually think that this is a little bit... This is, this is a, in some ways, what's happening to us when we're practicing meditation. Because 
in meditation, well, a lot of us are sitting and we're just kind of spacing out, you know, planning. Um, but when you can get concentrated in meditation, one of the things that starts to disappear is time. We start to touch a kind of more timeless place. And then also over time, instead of being so focused on our kind of neurotic stories, we kind of open up and we sometimes see images or patterns or colors, or we have a kind of feeling uh, level insight about our life that's sort of below how we normally think. And I actually wonder sometimes if when we're sitting, we're just a little bit closer to insanity. Because dreams are insane. You, you can't control them. I mean, just consider your dreams this week. Right? Imagine if that was happening in the room right now. So maybe when we have a good relationship with our dream life, just like when you have a relationship with the mind of meditation, we're a little closer to that way that we're also insane. And then I think we become more resilient psychologically because we sort of know how to be in states, emotional states, mind states, uh, that I think if we're more rigid, uh, tend to really overwhelm, overwhelm us. So I just want to go a little further now by reading the essay a little, and then we can we can we can speak. Um, so uh, I hope that there's enough that if you don't have one, you can find somebody close to you and you can uh, say hello, introduce yourself, maybe share a dream or two, real quick, and then we can read together. Because it is really worth following along. Jung is such a good writer. Okay. Uh, this is from Jung's book, uh, two e- called Two Essays on Analytical Psychology. Um, also, the nice thing about Jung is that he numbered his paragraphs when he wrote. So it's really easy to go back and find gems uh, that you need. It's like sutras. In Freud's view, as most people know, the contents of the unconscious are reducible to infantile tendencies, which are repressed because of their incompatible character. Repression is a process that begins in early childhood, under the moral influence of the environment, and continues throughout life. By means of analysis, the repressions are removed and the repressed wishes made conscious. So here he's totally in agreement with with Freud. According to this theory, the unconscious contains only those parts of the personality which could just as well be conscious and have been suppressed only through the process of education. So he's saying what's in the unconscious for Freud is only what the conscious personality can't integrate. So it's like, for example, the theory of the persona. Right? You have a persona, and in order to have a persona, you have to leave all this other stuff. Like if you have a persona as you know in your career or something, right? There's all this other stuff you have to have to leave out. Uh, I I teach uh, nonviolence, but really I'm I love boxing, you know. So I have to leave that out in here. <laughs> Although from one point of view, the infantile tendencies of the unconscious are most conspicuous, it would nonetheless be a mistake to define or evaluate the unconscious entirely in these terms. The unconscious has still another side to it. It includes not only repressed content, but all psychic material that lies below the threshold of consciousness. It is impossible to explain the subliminal nature of all this material on the principle of repression. So he's saying the unconscious is huge, right? 
And the conscious is just like a cork floating in an ocean, right? So the self that's conscious is actually just floating in this enormous sea that's spatial and temporal. And it's sort of barely hanging on. So that naturally, it's sort of defensive because it's always going to be overwhelmed by a wave. So it's just sort of sort of floating there. And he's saying, so how can you think that the conscious is just what that little self is repressing? Jung said it's the opposite, actually. It's the self that's actually just created out of these waves of the unconscious. For in that case, the removal of repression, this is a great idea, the removal of repression ought to endow a person with prodigious memory, which would thenceforth forget nothing. <laughs> so he's saying, imagine if you actually followed Freud's idea of lifting all repression, then suddenly there'd be no unconscious. And Freud's saying this makes absolutely no, or Jung's saying this makes no sense. We therefore emphatically affirm that in addition to the repressed material, the unconscious contains all those psychic components that have fallen below the threshold. So he's agreeing with Freud there. As well, liminal sense perceptions. Moreover, we know from abundant experience as well as for theoretical reasons that the unconscious also contains all the material that has not yet reached the threshold of consciousness. So now you have this idea with the, this kind of he's turning the whole model around, saying that actually the the unconscious actually has a purpose. So the psyche, which is mostly unconscious, is purposeful, and it's always acting to create uh, new patterns in conscious life in the psyche. So in other words, dreams, seen from this perspective, all have a purpose. And the purpose is to bring to consciousness some kind of pattern that's being left out. Right? Do you get this? So there's this idea that the unconscious, it's not just kind of this big ocean that you're floating in, but there are patterns in it that the small conscious mind needs to open to in order to grow and to heal and to fulfill its life. There are the seeds of future conscious content. Sorry, these are the seeds of future conscious content. Equally, we have reason to suppose that the unconscious is never quiescent in the sense of being inactive. In other words, the unconscious is always at work but is ceaselessly engaging in grouping and regrouping its contents. This activity should be thought of as completely autonomous, only in pathological cases. Normally, it's coordinated with the conscious mind in a compensatory relationship. This is Jung's most important idea, is that the conscious and unconscious have a compensatory relationship. When something is conscious and it starts to become too narrow, the unconscious shows up to offer a perspective to compensate. In other words, conscious and unconscious in some deep biological way are always keeping each other in balance, and that's why that cork that is the self never gets overwhelmed. Except, he says, in pathological cases which we're going to get to more, where there are times where the ego gets submerged and it's just pure un- unconscious, which is actually what ends up happening to Jung. He, he ends up going into psychosis for almost three years. Um, so you can see here a real kind of sensitivity, a kind of phenomenology in a subjective way. Like just being able to look at his own experience so honestly and kind of courageously to go down those stairs, open up that slab and keep... And he's saying to himself, I need to go deeper. I need to see what this is. And then he hits the bottom. And then out of that, he develops this psychology. So one one theory that I have 
and I've never like tested this, but I have this idea that every psychologist's theory is actually just their biography. So, like, like you, what Freud struggled with was just what he was struggling with. His soul was struggling with biographically. And for Jung, what he was struggling with was much more religious. It was much more mythological. Uh, and also, Jung really suffered from losing his mind. And so that was the area he was very, very sensitive with. And so I've always had this idea, Freud has this term called reality testing, and I always thought Jung was unreality testing. Like, he was testing his reality against what was really uh, irrational and, and in the world of images. So as you read this, you're kind of reading Jung's biography, you know, not just some great theory you know, he had. Um, so if you drew this, uh, you, would, you could draw a circle, and in the center of the circle is the self, which is um, the conscious self, the personality, right? the, the part of us that we know. And then around that, you would have the personal unconscious. So this is the part of the unconscious where there are things your mind can accept, and you repress them. Has anyone done this before? Okay. And it happens in ways. It happens in mild ways. During the day, someone slights you and you just kind of... Uh, or it happens in big ways, like trauma. Right? And then around that, you have this other circle that doesn't have a border. And it just goes on forever. And this is the collective unconscious. And what he means by the collective unconscious is it's a level of unconsciousness we all share. And then Jung has this great, it's not in this essay, but he has a great definition of the unconscious in an interview where someone asks him, what is the unconscious? And he says, when you're unconscious, you're unconscious. Isn't that good? If something's unconscious, then it's unconscious. Like for Freud, if something's unconscious, it's your consciousness put it there. But for Jung, if something's unconscious, it's just, you don't know. That's why it's unconscious. So he has, so he has these kind of deeper levels of unconsciousness. Yeah. Which slip into the world of myth. Uh, and um, we're, we're going to get more, more into that. So are there any uh, comments or questions? I, I think I've said qu- quite a lot. Yeah, Barson. An interview oh. with uh, this guy called Flynn Moore, who's a comic book writer, mm-hmm. and he's into uh, like occultism and stuff. And he described it as um, like your your personal conscious is like your house, and you live in your house. And uh, if you go, you, can, you know, you can go outside your house into the street and then to the park, and that's sort of like your unconscious. Yeah. Or everyone like meets, and has fun, and plays games, and you know, dreams or something. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, that's yeah, another way of looking at it. Yeah, that's one way of seeing it, for sure. Yeah, I think for Jung, though, the unconscious is darker. Yeah. Well, it must have been a scary place for him, because he did lose yeah. his mind, right? Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, and, you know, a lot of people have been there. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. I guess it all depends on your personality and how you deal with that kind of stuff, and your yeah. personal your, you know, insights, too. Yeah. Uh, and your, your relationship with that kind of phenomena as well. Yeah. Uh, like you can't. Like Jung was was really big on uh, not believing, not uh, like you have to test. It, like even the Buddha said, you have to test it for yourself. Yeah. So Jung you, was totally in, in, yeah. Yeah. I mean, you can hear this in his writing that he's really pioneering something. Like he's trying to say, like, should I just? I mean, Freud's quite a bit older than him. So and he's just like starting to break, you know, saying I, I can't just take your authority. Yeah. Barson, did you have here? Yeah. 
Yeah, Jung sees it in both ways, I think. So he sees, he agrees with Freud that there are parts of the personality that split off certain contexts and put it into the unconscious. But Freud's, but Jung's saying, but something's working in the other direction also. That, that there's some level of the unconscious that's actually continually bringing uh, content into consciousness to compensate for a consciousness that's imbalanced. So an example of this is, let's say you're sleeping and you have a dream, and in the dream uh, it's very vivid and then it wakes you up. You have a, night- you have a nightmare. So from a Jungian perspective, that's the unconscious literally waking you up. Saying, wake up. <laughs> Look at this material. Right? So that's kind of like a very literal way of seeing how it's not just that the personality is pushing stuff down, it's also that there's this larger unconscious continually bringing stuff up. And then, what do you do with that? Can you listen to that? <laughs> Which is what we're going to talk about a little bit later in the month. I I feel like you're giving it as an example, so maybe it's not really a point to bring up, but Uh you said you can't control your dreams. And I was thinking of, but yes, I can. There are are times when you can, or when you're conscious and lucid. For sure. And so in that moment, is that consciousness playing with the unconscious? I think for, for, for Jung's perspective, probably in lucid dreaming, and I don't know that much about lucid dreaming, have very little experience. Um, there's a sense still where you're still working in the personal unconscious. Jung's interest more is listening to the deepest layers of the unconscious to inform in a compensatory way your attitude. Uh, but I don't know if Jung ever really talked about lucid dreaming. I don't think so. And I don't know that it's yeah. even relevant yeah. It's more about looking at those two and how yeah. they speak to one another. Yeah, like I just don't really know enough about lucid dreaming to, to say. Yeah. Um, I'm just wondering about you know, going into the state of psychosis. Yeah. And if that was something that he began doing consciously as mm-hmm. like investigation uh-huh. or research, and yeah. then did he like, go there on purpose and then could get out? Yeah. Uh, well, we're going to talk about that next week. So, so in not long after these were published, that's when he decided that he was going to leave his relationship with Freud, and he was going to lock himself in a house that he built by hand with stones that he saw in a dream. So he built this house for himself with a little tower on Lake Geneva. And he, he locked himself in there and stopped writing and started painting. Um, and he uh, lost his mind. And he was there for three years. Yeah. So, um, but that's traced back to an experience he had in childhood. And I'm going to talk about that next week. So yes, in his adult life, he really played with that and barely hung on. But in his childhood, it was much more painful, uh, this experience of um, being overwhelmed by images and dreams. So I'm going to talk about that too. And and I also have a theory that some of this was related to his parenting, which I'm going to talk about. Karina? Um, You mentioned how this compensatory relationship in his thinking was purposeful mm-hmm. and like that triggers me it feels yeah. like such a Judeo-Christian overlay to something that could be accidental or just yeah. something that happens at this yeah. fit interface of the two levels yeah. of consciousness yeah. I'm just curious if you can say more about where that would come from in his thinking um, 
I mean, I think a lot of people have criticized Jung for being reductionistic. That certain patterns maybe he read into their purpose in a way that fit his theories. So he's definitely been criticized for that. Um, But from a kind of more anthropological perspective, people have always looked to like the the mysterious part of life for uh, for guidance, and it seems what Jung was really doing was in, he wasn't living in the natural world where like trees would speak to him or bears would speak to him or the northern lights would speak to him. For him, it was like these inner images, and he thought that the collective unconscious was structured by images and that images would speak to him. And uh, he thought the deepest layer of our psyche is all images. And these images that really surprised him uh, would speak to him. And so that's why he had this idea of like, that this was a compensation somehow. But I think the criticism is really valid. And you'll see as we get into some of his interpretations, sometimes (laughs) it seems like he's seeing what he wants to see in the same way that Freud did. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. I'm always caught by dream dictionaries. Uh-oh. <laughs> <They're>, yeah. <laughs> dangerous. <laughs> dangerous, dangerous. But it's, it's always really interesting to me if I look something up. If I have a very bizarre dream, I'll go look up you know, eating glass. <laughs> I dreamt about eating glass. I'm thinking, that is so bizarre. But you look it up, and it's there. Yeah. yeah. Other people have this yeah. dream. <laughs> what? Yeah. So, like yeah. that part of Young's work really appeals because I yeah. think there's something to this. Mm-hmm. These images come up. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, of course, the the person who deeply studied Young's work, who became much more famous than Young in a way in, in the West, is Joseph Campbell. Because Joseph Campbell took this idea to a whole nother level, saying, okay, well, let's look around at world mythology and see what are the patterns. And uh, he did some really fascinating work. That also has its criticisms, too. Um, But um, for our purpose so far, well, I think we've covered a lot. (laughs) Someone else. Could I ask you a question about the unconscious and meditation? Sure, yeah. Um, I've been told that during deep meditation, we yeah. can access the unconscious mind in a way that you can't normally. Yeah. And I'm just wondering, what is it that makes that so? Like, what's happening physiologically, chemically, or, or I don't know. Like, I'm just I'm curious why that is. What's yeah, I mean, there's different ways to answer that. One is just the ego is more porous. It's not... I mean, when you're meditating, even if your technique is pretty so-so, I'm not accusing you of that, um, uh, just grasping kind of settles a little bit, you know? And then, um, like, the waves of things other than what you always think about uh, have, have space. Like, the boundaries are not so high. But actually, this is really interesting. This summer, I was at a conference called the Buddhist Geeks Conference, which is exactly what it sounds like. <laughs> and um, uh, one of the things that's happening in neuroscience right now is that the Dalai Lama wants the people who are in the interface with neuroscience and Buddhism to be called what he calls hybrids. So what that means is, if you're a neuroscientist studying the mind, he wants you to be a practitioner. And those are the people who are now getting all the money. Um, And so I spent some time talking with some of them who are doing a study about people who go into deep states of meditation and get overwhelmed and have what they call a dark night, which can last many years. So what they did was they started collecting people who had gone on Vipassana retreats mostly, who had, um, usually after the retreat, had some kind of breakdown. And they started asking them about their experience. 
And then, after they collected hundreds and hundreds of these, they then went to all the top meditation teachers and said, first of all, do you know about this? And what do you think about this? And most of the teachers said, well, yes, we know about it. And the reason is because in meditation practice, when the ego starts to, to uh, um, come apart a little, not come apart, but just become more transparent, then old trauma and experiences from childhood that have been repressed, they come back again. So then the neuroscientists said, well, actually, that's not what the research is showing. The research is showing that more than half the people who have these experiences had great childhoods, don't have history of trauma, um, have supportive parents, uh, don't have all these things that we uh, suppose. So in a way, this is kind of like the Jung-Freud debate happening right now. Because uh, in the Buddhist teaching world, this is like the hot research that everyone's really paying attention to, is when these experiences are happening to people, uh, they're not always happening to the people we think that they're happening to. So we have all these, you know, and some of you know this who've come on retreat, we have all these questions we ask. Have you ever tried to commit suicide? Have you ever been, you know, assaulted? To try and, like, screen, you know? (laughs) But it turns out that the screens aren't working and that people are having these experiences of being overwhelmed, which they're calling the dark night, that's not from the personal unconscious. So they went to the Dalai Lama and they said to the Dalai Lama, here's the research. So like, what do we do about this? Because what's happening is people are having these wild experiences that sometimes put them into their house for three or four years where they have to stop working. Um, They're totally overwhelmed. And the Dalai Lama said, I was just invited to give uh, to a ceremony to open a new temple in southern India. And I got there. And the ceremony had started, and I looked around, and then I said to the head priest, where's your library? And the priest said, oh, we don't have one. And I said, well, I won't bless the temple. This was his answer. (laughs) The answer being, people are jumping into these deep states without a map. And the map is not a map to deal with your personal issues. The map is to deal with what happens when the ego comes apart and there's this whole world of monsters. <laughs> you know. So now the Dalai Lama started this really interesting thing. I used the term hybrid before. So now there's these hybrid teams. So Brown University has their own fMRI machine to study meditators. And now they have these triads. So a neuroscientist, a meditator, and a scholar work together so that when they're talking about meditative states, the scholar can uh, look into the texts that talk about those states because those texts are the mythological realm that talk about states that are not necessarily just about something that happened with your father that now you're remembering on your retreat. So to me, this is exactly the same as what Jung is talking about. But Jung didn't know it in this way, of course. So I think this really impacts uh, our practice in many ways. uh, Let's just let Lori first and then Tom. I remember it was, is it Willoughby? Willoughby, Britain, yeah. And she's coming to Toronto to come present her research. Yeah. Amazing. So she talked also about um, like the problem of reintegration after Mm -hmm. having this experience and that they would take these meditators and put them in residences, like dormitories, and support them as they came back from long periods of meditation in their reintegration into their regular lives. Mm -hmm. And I think they were researching 
how much that had an effect instead yeah. of somebody leaving a meditation retreat and you know being slammed yeah. with trying to return back to yeah. their lives. Yeah. Yeah, I mean if you wanted to learn more about this, there's a website called Cheetah House. Mm-hmm. And they developed this place called Cheetah House where people from all over the country can come if they've had these experiences and live together. Yeah. And it's actually Willoughby's house. Mm-hmm. And but and, and the only rule is you have to be ordained. So it's only people who are, you know, really have gone deep in practice mm-hmm. and had these experiences. So you can look up Cheetah House, it's really interesting. Tom? Well, I was just uh, is Jean really suggesting that this unconscious is, is all common to everybody? Mm-hmm. That, it's, that it's arrived from the first, from Adam and Eve, so to speak. It arrived from the first sort of individual that's their form of healing. He gets. He's always that. struggling to figure out where it all comes from, yeah. but he never wants to say okay. so much, okay. like that it originates somewhere. It's just that it's developed a la Darwin yeah. over millions of years, and in the same way that our bones have. And what Jung was offering to Western thought was this missing piece of people being caught up in the physical level of Darwinian thinking and Jung trying to say well there's a psychological level that also works like that I've often heard of Jung when you read yoga texts or Jung is sometimes referred to as some kind of connection between his thinking and this large consciousness that uh, you get exposed to for sure yeah I mean of course some of you know that Jung later in his life started uh, studying yoga yeah. um, because he thought that this would actually be better uh, to study um, the art of Tantra yoga um, and Kundalini yoga um, he became really fascinated with and the Tibetan book of the dead of course Some one more person who hasn't spoken yet. yeah it strikes me that, um, that, the, that some of the traditional methods mm-hmm. speak very strongly about, you know, you've really got to get your foundation yeah. um, down in order to, yeah. to do the deeper practices. Yeah. Got to, they talk about strengthening the vessel. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, mm-hmm. I wonder if, if maybe in, in Jung's case, he, I mean, he was clearly going deep in his exploration. Yeah. Uh, his vessel perhaps wasn't strong enough. Yeah. And is this what's happening in the West? Or, yeah. You know, we haven't done our foundation practices. That, that's the hypothesis. But these scientists are proving that wrong. And, and the scholars are proving it wrong. Because they're saying, so for example, in the Visuddhi Maga, which is a tech you're probably familiar with, um, which describes the, is it the 16 stages of awakening? Once you get to like eight or nine, it's horrible. I mean, what they talk about, what starts happening, is really awful. So that's not because the vessel's not weak, it's because those are also realms um, that we have to learn how to be in. Uh, likewise, in the Bhagavad Gita in chapter 18, you know, everything is going great, and then Arjuna says to Krishna, Okay, now show me who you are. And then Krishna just becomes wrathful. And Arjuna is saying, no, no, I can't look at you. Like, that can't be who you are. And all Krishna says is, just keep looking at me. And Arjuna can't handle it. So, again, like we have this little bit of bias that the container's not strong. I agree, you need a strong container. And also, whether or not the container's strong... There are these wrathful states that we're going to explore. You know? And um, that's why I think the Dalai Lama's response is so interesting. Saying, oh, this is happening? You should have a library. <laughs> because it's not happening always because of some weak part of the meditator's personality. And he's saying, look at the maps. Like This is also... Um, a place to overwhelm you. So, uh, 
this is all kind of new to me, actually. It's really, I find it really, really interesting. Sebastian. I can't help but thinking about the idea of like morphogenetic fields, Mm. basically fields of information. So Mm. um, a model that, you know, through evolution itself, there is a sort of uh, prehension or or some sort of uh, subtle consciousness which leaves imprints. And so when you see birds moving mm-hmm. or schools of fish, mm-hmm. it's that simultaneous movement. It's almost like there's a field of information mm-hmm. that they're all tapping into. Yeah. So there would be like, I'm thinking of almost like a historical um, field of information, greater field of information, yeah. which is taking in the previous and the previous, yes. and that's generating yes. uh, the unconscious. Yeah, and it happens in contact. So it's like the mother and the child. Right? They have contact with each other and it instigates in them these deeper patterns. That's exactly what Jung is saying. But he's saying that for so long we've always thought this is just physical. It's just at a genetic level. And Jung's saying, but we have to also see how this works in our minds. Psychological level. Okay. So, it's been very interesting. Uh, for me, anyway. <laughs> um, so uh, next week I'm going to uh, kind of talk a little bit more about Jung as a kid and how some of these ideas developed. Uh, but what's important for those of you that have a copy is take take this home and read the essay because I'm not going to go through the essay sentence by sentence. I'm going to refer to the essay and I hope you you've read it. The talks? The um, essays, so that if we didn't get a copy, we can... Well, I don't know. I mean, I guess you could... I guess we could scan just, it or, or something. Just the name, even. Oh, well, the I name is called it. Two Essays on Analytical okay. Psychology. Okay. And we're looking at page 127 to 187. Two Essays on Analytical Psychology. Page 127 to 187. Please have it read by next week. Can I just ask a quick question yeah. about, I, I actually don't remember my dreams very well, so yeah. do you have any quick suggestions? Yeah. Just lie in bed a little longer <laughs> in the morning and wake up and breathe. Follow your breathing. Just lie in bed and follow your breathing. And then they'll come. Whenever I read Jung, they just start coming. Yeah. Yeah. Or you can take a seven-week boat trip. Oh, how many copies do we need for next week? Who doesn't have a? Who doesn't have a copy? Yeah. Okay, I'll photocopy twenty. Yes, Marco. I remember somebody was telling me about dreams. Yeah. Because I don't dream a lot, and then once somebody starts to listen to your dreams, so maybe somebody else or yourself, then we'll start to flow. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, find a friend who you can call in the morning. <laughs> as soon as you wake up. And you'll just breathe together until you remember the, the dreams. Maybe if you had a pipe and you like put on tweed. <laughs> so let's finish chanting.